0: This is Veterans Radio Hour. We are here for you. No one left behind. Here's your host, General Grange.
1: Uh, good evening to tonight's program on Veterans Radio Hour. This program is in honor of those veterans who fought, who died at Pearl Harbor and those who gave it back to our enemy with defeat. Tonight's program is about irregular warfare, IW, who many may say is not so irregular, not so unconventional, especially today or even throughout history. It touches on unconventional warfare, counterterrorism, foreign internal defense, counterinsurgency, stability operations, information operations, which involve PSYOPs. Or psychological warfare, deception, civil affairs, cyber. So there's many doctrinal terms out there. It's changed since I was in the military through today. We're gonna to start out just talking about from the corporal up through the general officer and those that support the veterans. And R D, if you could go ahead, give a disclaimer please.
2: In tonight's program we are employing open source material with an eye
1: on remaining in
2: an absolutely unclassified mode. So if members of the audience hear terms that they believe are outdated or perhaps not the most current doctrine, we've developed this program based on open source material only. We would like these terms to become familiar to our audience at large. So sit back and enjoy the program. You will hear these terms in basic
1: detail. Thank you, R.D. I believe that irregular warfare is a continuous process. that never ends. It is always relevant. It shapes the range of military operations and conflict continuum. It has an unconventional character. It is direct or passive. It is used against the government or occupying force. It is a regular vice on conventional means. It is about influence. It is about the feet. Using a regular warfare, conventional warfare, or a hybrid of both, which is quite often the case. The regular warfare is for everyone, all services, and all their branches of each service. Special operations, light units, heavy units. Its use is extremely relevant in the gray areas, the cracks, the seams, the periphery. It works extremely well when a nation employs a regular warfare with mass and unity of effort. What I mean by that, all elements of a country's power, diplomacy, information, military, and economics. In other words, dime, B-I-M-E. When all agencies are in the fight together and in harmony, it works very well. The Chinese are expert at the art of irregular warfare. Irregular warfare sets conditions for the short term and for the long term. It is an economy of force tool for engagement. It can enhance warfighting functions. For instance, command and control. It can enhance the unique organization of a command. For a particular operation. On information, employing influencing tool sets at the right place at the right time. Fires applied by air, ground, and sea. Those options providing the best effects at the right place in the right time. Movement and maneuver, unique application using terrain, the population of the target area, the disposition of friendly, and enemy forces and the civilian populace, understanding of the enemy, their intent, and lines of effect with return on investment, no different than the business organization. Protection, using soft SOFT, the regular warfare skills like civil affairs, information ops, civil military operations. and. Last but not least, sustainment, using unique lines of communication, otherwise meaning lines of support. Mm -hmm. We have some very experienced guests on tonight to share their thoughts on irregular warfare or components thereof. And they're going to focus on not only before and today, but also going forward from their experience. R.D., take over.
2: Tonight, we have a number of guests with us. I would like to first introduce Mr. Doug Wise, an intelligence professional who will give a background on himself. Doug, over to you.
3: Uh, General Grange and uh, distinguished colleagues. I was uh, commissioned in the military out of West Point. I was appointed to West Point by Senator John Glenn. Uh, Served a full 20 years in the the military. And the last five years of which I was on detail to the Central Intelligence Agency where I Spent the next 30 years undercover. I had the opportunity to serve in 11 different geographic areas. I spent two tours in Afghanistan. I did two tours in Iraq to include five years there as the chief of station. I was also chief of all operational training for CIA and finished out my career with the Defense Intelligence Agency, and then I retired in 2016. It's an honor to be here. Thank you, Doug. General,
2: back to you to introduce your guests. So next is
1: Dan Morgan, uh, Infantry Officer, United States
4: Army. And Dan, would you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Good evening, sir. And, and all the uh, on the call. I want to take the opportunity to thank you for letting me participate in tonight's uh, discussion, which I think is obviously very critical uh, for today's active duty service members, as well as all of our veterans. Um, I am a uh, Former military officer in the United States Army. However, I was enlisted uh, in Naval Special Warfare Group 1 in the 1980s. Uh, graduated at a Georgetown University ROTC program where I also earned my master's uh, program in National Security Strategic Studies. Um, I did retire as an infantry officer uh, with multiple assignments across uh, the 18th Airborne Corps, um, in the 101st and uh, 10th Mountain Division in particular. I have multiple deployments uh, spanning a total of about nine years in Afghanistan or Iraq where I rotated back and forth as either a commander or as a operations officer, all the way up to the division uh, level at Regional Command East. I commanded at the brigade level as well. Um, And then my last assignment, I was the Senior Military Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York City. Which uh, then I decided to retire uh, based off of some family priorities. Uh, one significant aspect of my background too, uh, being in multiple geographical areas of responsibilities, I spent uh, many years in counter narcotics uh, in the 90s and uh, the uh, early part of 2000 prior to 11, where I was actually serving as General Barry McCaffrey's executive, um, and when he was the nation's drug czar. Uh, so spent a lot of time from China all the way back, obviously into Colombia. Um, and seeing a lot of other national security issues um, outside of just military. And it falls right into what we're talking about tonight. So, again, thank you for having me uh, on today.
0: Well, thank you, Dan. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
5: Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com.
0: My father was the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition.
3: I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat.
4: To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go; you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a
6: really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very
0: reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. We're back, and here's your co-host, Ranger Doug.
2: Irregular warfare jumps up a level and contains all the other competencies, including unconventional warfare, ability operations, foreign internal defense, counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, and, and you can add to that information support operations, which is Chuck's specialty, cyberspace operations, countering threat networks, countering threat finance, civil military ops, security cooperation. So Doug, you cannot separate the hybrid environment or the irregular environment from the the large-scale combat environment, because they run together and different threats, enemies and such are going to run irregular activities at us while we believe we're engaged in conventional warfare. We're very happy to run conventional warfare. We really like the idea of industrializing everything. And although we did a great job in a, in a regular way in hybrid warfare ourselves in Afghanistan, everybody knows how we do it. They're going to copy us and they're moving ahead. Plus our, our uh, adversaries in the People's Republic of China in issuing their unrestricted warfare uh, paper back in 98 were actually signaling that they'd figured out how to shortcut every one of our strategies, including such things as financial warfare, information warfare, and so forth, and they've demonstrated themselves to be extremely capable at that. So, Doug, taking advantage of your vast experience as you've described and your, your background, what are some things that you think from the strategic level, the operational level, and the tactical level the practitioners and citizens ought to be concerned about regarding information and intelligence from your perspective and experience as we look at that nexus of of irregular warfare and where it abuts conventional warfare, whether it's run separately or not. Over to you, Doug.
3: Well, thank you. Tom. I think that's a, a, an interesting question. I think as uh, General Grange was running down the uh, the elements of irregular warfare, I think what struck me. And what I've experienced throughout my career, and I'm certain that all of the distinguished gentlemen on this podcast have experienced that irregular warfare is really a blend. It's really a, a mix and involves the collaboration between disparate pieces of the Department of Defense, the uniformed military, and certainly the interagency, which includes the U.S. intelligence community in its, in its many parts. I, I think that uh, you know what's important is to understand that in that blending that we 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 keep in mind that none of this happens in isolation and i think you mentioned that you know there's a political context uh, we don't do things unilaterally uh, it is a continuum exactly as general grain says there is no start there is no end we're right in the middle of irregular and unconventional warfare literally as we speak. And our adversaries who have not been distracted by the war on terror, whose nations have not been attacked and whose nations have not had to invest in doctrine and tactics and capabilities and weapon systems and training and all the other things that have allowed the US military to prevail on multiple battlefields in the war on terror, they have had the time to really study, to understand, and to really develop the capability to integrate their own unconventional warfare with that political context. And they fully understand that those unconventional and irregular warfare activities are not gonna be done either, as I said, in isolation or, or unilaterally. They have to be done as part of something greater. And whether that is to enhance conventional forces, whether it's to enable the interagency success, or whether it's to leverage interagency capabilities, the reality is unconventional warfare, irregular warfare is going to be extremely complicated, and it's going to require a significant amount of Attitudinal and experiential reorientation, I think, uh, to prevail on the modern battlefield. And I might throw in there that, quite frankly, I think, and again, I'm not an expert on on unconventional warfare, but if you look at the application of unconventional warfare by our adversaries, what better counter unconventional warfare than highly trained U.S. military unconventional warfare experts which almost exclusively are the US Army and our other military special operations forces.
2: Uh, Doug, this is Ranger Doug. I just wanted to extend that that question a little bit because I know your background and we've discussed capabilities many times. I see one of our biggest problems as uh, actual defense against cyber attacks and our ability to work through those cyber attacks and then also our ability to attack uh, our enemies with cyber. Do you see that as well?
3: Yeah, your question is whether there's a role for cyber uh, in terms of our adversaries' capabilities, and the answer is absolutely, and it plays right into what General Granger was talking about, which is the continuum. What a beautiful capability to sustain that continuum than to engage in cyber warfare in its absolute many forms, whether it's cyber warfare to conduct operational preparation of the battle space or cyber espionage done in extraordinary scale by the Chinese and to a lesser scale by the Russians. But it's also going to be cyber attacks against U.S. people to include senior and less senior U.S. military officers and MCOs, all designed to distract them from the burdens of command and the stress of combat. It'll also impact the infrastructure necessary to support large-scale operation, large-scale combat operations, which means to me that the small unit unconventional warfare activities and the full spectrum of irregular warfare activities, you know, will be the most likely tools for us to apply because cyber impediments and cyber obstacles will almost assuredly impact the ability to deploy i'm not saying maneuver but to deploy large-scale conventional forces on a modern battlefield whether that's in asia or whether that's in europe that's a great answer and so also i think what i what i hear you saying
2: is what we've actually discussed in the past that this uh, attack against uh, our cyber capability could extend to uh, the homeland where we always have thought we had sanctuary to include uh, the families and the finances of deployed personnel as a distraction, but also combining other aspects of irregular warfare, we might see such things in the home area as attacks against the families that might be kinetic of sorts, kidnappings and other things. Would you say that that also is now on the table given the capabilities of our adversaries?
3: I think the uh, physical attack on families in the homeland would, would be a bit difficult, not impossible, I don't rule it out, but I think the probability of that's pretty small. I think the probability of them uh, attacking the homeland and the families of these military officers and non-commissioned officers, I think is the probability is quite high. The destruction of finances, the removal from deers, the uh, termination of, of credit cards, the zeroing out of bank accounts, the disinformation aspect, the publication of false court records, false criminal accusations. And, and, and I could go on and on and on. It really is only limited by the imagination of those that are actually conducting these cyber attacks. And it's all designed to do one thing, to really undermine the confidence in the citizens of the United States. And more importantly, to distract the senior officers and NCOs from the sacred duty of leading women and men in combat, whether it's large scale combat or whether it's smaller scale combat. The bottom line is this war is already being fought. As General Grain said, this has no beginning, it has no end, it is, we're already in the middle of Russian and Chinese unconventional and irregular warfare. Doug, thank you very much. That was a great answer.
2: Appreciate your participation. Would there be anything else that you would care to add ab- about this topic from your perspective?
3: Yeah, I would like to just add a few random uh, comments. And again, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a little reluctant because, unlike the others on on this podcast, I'm by no means a, a, even a student of unconventional warfare. Uh, having spent the bulk of my career doing clandestine human operations. Well, one thing that I can say that I've already said, which is irregular warfare is complex. Unconventional warfare, a subset of irregular warfare, is equally complex. It's complex in its structure. It's complex in its conduct. The capabilities are very complex. And it all requires extraordinary training, a depth of expertise. In areas that the United States of America and our military has not had the luxury to become experts in, quite frankly, uh, our unconventional warfare forces and capability. You it, it'll require a Ph.D. in deep area knowledge. It will require a Ph.D. in the politic in the politics in the strategic aspects, the regional, and in the precise location of where we're conducting these unconventional warfare activities. It required deep, deep, intimate understanding of the politics, not just US policy, but also the politics of the battle space. It'll require a PhD level understanding in cultural societal processes and forces and the factors that are affecting the culture and society of the nation in which we're fighting the nation we are fighting. And I think it's also necessary to understand that if we are fighting, whether it's on an Asian or whether it's on a European battlefield, that there's likely to be combat in a nation state that is sovereign and that actually believes that it still is a sovereign nation even though there may be unconventional warfare and large-scale combat operations. And all of that feeds into the complex melange and the complex political stew that it's going to be existing and will face commanders, whether you're an ODA commander or whether you're a corps commander. And I think it's also equally important that the unconventional warriors of our military truly understand the interagency, and really embrace and really can deeply inculcate the fact that they're not going to be alone on the battlefield, that there's going to be interagency engagement, whether it's federal law enforcement, whether it's CIA, whether it's defense intelligence, whether it's SIGINT, and it's many forms. The reality is the interagency is going to be in the fight it's gonna be doing its thing often under its own authorities. And it is important that the unconventional warriors understand that this is extraordinarily, this brings extraordinary strengths, but they also need to understand in equal measure the extraordinary shortcomings that exist. And it's all part of the fact that unconventional warfare and irregular warfare can only be successful if you have experts in the practice Experts who are enlightened and really understand the complexity involved, and experts that really have embraced the notion of cooperation and collaboration. It is absolutely critical because otherwise, unconventional warfare and irregular warfare, whether it's going to be a direct attack, whether it's foreign internal development, whether it's messaging. Counter messaging, cyber, human, psyops, all of that catalog of activities that General Grange mentioned. The fact of the matter is that the unconventional warriors are going to have to bring it all together. They're going to have to create unity of effort. They're going to have to bring a sharp focus because, in the end, you know, they are doing things to create tactical, operational, and strategic degradation of our enemies and to enhance the capability of conventional forces and their ability to accomplish the political objective regardless of where the battlefield is. Doug, that was great.
2: I Just uh, in thinking about what you've said, I've I've thought of four things that kind of wrap up what you're saying, that uh, truly irregular warfare and its subset unconventional warfare are, we could say, whole-of-government activities in other words, involving the interagency, but but that's more than – whole of government is a bit more than what we recognize as the expeditionary interagency. Secondly, we have to be aware of the fact that we're under attack now and that the main thing we depend on is our precision capabilities. Cyber will deny us that, whether it be navigation, precision, weaponry, or whatever. We have to put a premium on training that allows us to get back to more simple things as backups because the one that ends up being able to fight through cyber impairment is is the one – uh, that will win. And also then uh, commanders, soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marine, Coast Guardsmen, officers, NCOs need to develop expertise and a mindset for irregular warfare and think and act uncon- unconventional that can be abetted by the soft elements in their particular service. And then finally, I believe that uh, absolute Understanding, understanding management and control of information and intelligence are critical in this domain as well as in the nexus between irregular and conventional warfare, otherwise known by many as large scale combat. Would you think that characterizes pretty well what you've said?
3: Yeah, I think that characterizes it very well. In fact, it says it much better than I said it. Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm a little, a little jealous. Uh, the only final comment I'll make is in my remarks, Uh, It appeared as if I was putting all of the burden to address the complexities of unconventional warfare on the shoulders of our extraordinarily capable U.S. military. The problem is that the interagency also has to understand everything I said as a flip side of that coin. And I don't think that they're very well prepared. Attitudinally in the training machine or the day-to-day operations or planning that our whole government, to use your term, you know, I'm not sure that they've given as much thought. In fact, I might argue that the U.S. military could be well ahead of the interagency and will have to be inspire the same kind of collaborative and cooperative behaviors and unity of effort uh, that we would expect would naturally develop in this kind of environment. But the reality is that both sides are going to have to learn about each other, dispel mythology, to really appreciate the capabilities and not impute evil to behaviors that are countercultural within the interagency or countercultural within the U.S. military. So I think it's all about working together. It's all about subordinating one's organizational or personal goals sometimes to enable the success of your partner. That's the most important aspect, in my view, of unconventional warfare. That and smoking the enemy, as General Green said, prevailing on the battlefield. And I'm confident that the U.S. military will do that. It's been an honor. General Grange, it's been an honor, Uh, deeply appreciate that you're doing this to the veterans of the United States and on this day in particular, where the greatest generation took the greatest blow that they ever had and were able, as you say, to pick themselves up and to really prevail uh, over a very capable enemy with great courage and certainly great sacrifice. So, thank you very much for allowing me to be here this evening.
1: Good, good here, good here, Premier Ranger.
3: Thanks much. And now, word from
2: our sponsors.
0: You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour with host General David Grange. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. My father was the, the best truck driver I've known in my life. Look at family tradition.
3: I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat.
4: To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry.
0: The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new, and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again is...
5: Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985. Serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com.
0: Here's your host, General Grange.
2: Welcome back to the Veterans Radio R 2.0, where tonight our subject is irregular warfare and its applications across the U.S.
1: government. General, over to you. Thank you, Ranger Doug. Appreciate it. Our next guest, Dan
4: Morgan. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you, sir, for having me. I appreciate the opportunity.
1: Yeah, for the guests on here, uh, could could you just give us? A, I know what you've done quite well. Can you give us a little background uh, on your experience as a as a soldier, and uh, and then we'll go on and talk about irregular warfare.
4: Yeah. So yeah, my name is Dan Moore. I retired uh, as a colonel uh, of the infantry, uh, Ranger qualified, airborne, paratrooper, etc. Uh, retired in 2018. Uh, spent uh, my entire kids' lives in between 2001 and 9/11 and 2015. Deploying back and forth to Iraq and Afghanistan, with maybe one year in between each deployment, uh, an extensive amount of uh, combat experiences as a either as a commander or as an operations officer. That's all I ever did when I was in uh, in the Army on active duty, and, and now I'm a veteran. A lot of lessons learned with regards to the blending of conventional and irregular warfare. Uh, that is the topic for tonight, and and you know I look forward to talking about this uh, some more with you, sir.
1: Well, thank you, Dan, and uh, the country is very fortunate to have you as a veteran in its ranks. You spent a lot of time in Iraq and Afghanistan. So the first question I'd like to ask you is what could we have done better in Iraq and Afghanistan, or just pick one if you want, when you're looking at like the principles of war, mass, unity of effort, uh, if you're looking at how easy ISIS came down from Syria smashing through Mosul, Chasing off Abrams tanks with white Toyota pickup trucks. Where Afghanistan, where the Taliban took over, got firing a shot. Where now it's full of ISIS. It's actually the safe haven for ISIS. Fifteen thousand more Al Qaeda troops just entered over since uh, one September. Afghanistan. Uh, ISK. The trustees are gone, etc. So when you're looking at irregular warfare. What did we do wrong, or did we do it right? And it just just the way it is. It's just a, a tough set to accomplish. Give us your give us your feeling on
4: that. Yeah. So wow, that is a a very deep question, and, and there's a lot of answers to that. But if I can, right up front, I, I'm gonna to the veterans, you know, as your audience that's out here. I, you know, the same goes from your your time with Vietnam, which was with my father as well my father was the operations officer to general stan McChrystal's father in vietnam and even with iraq and afghanistan and and the debacles that you kind of laid out here i don't think that the veterans of today from 9 11 post 9 11 should should think that their sacrifice and their service thus far is is at a loss we we still have time to shake we have shaped a full generation of young people both in iraq and afghanistan that are still trying to stand up and, and open up their countries to be free uh, with rule of law and so forth. So uh, I would say that the fight is not over and IW can continue that fight better than any other capability that our army uh, or joint force actually has. I, I think the, the what I think we did in Iraq and Afghanistan was absolutely phenomenal in the blending of conventional warfare and our special operations forces as they came together. Um, I fought alongside of, of those forces every single deployment uh, where sometimes it was me in an operations center or sometimes it was actually blood and bone on the battlefield with each other. And so I think we actually did pretty well. I think some of the shortfalls that that really existed in both of the countries was tied to... Uh, political end states and political uh, grit and determination. If you remember in Iraq, we weren't even maybe two, three years into the war, and there were bumper stickers back in America that said support the troops and not the war. That's not how you fight a war, particularly when you're inside of a nation state, uh, such as Iraq or Afghanistan, where the fighting is going to be extremely complex and does require the whole of government approach. And if you can't get the whole of government approach, In the execution of, you know, regular warfare mixed with conventional warfare type operations, you're you're set up for failure in a lot of ways. Uh, So I think in some ways we did very well um, at our level, at the operational tactical level. I think the biggest issue that we have right now, we need to take the lessons that we've learned and we need to institutionalize it with regards to our military, our joint force, and then we have to operationalize it without a doubt. Um, we have not institutionalized it. I, I am very concerned, uh, although I agree with great power politics in China and Russia, um, I believe in the old theory of Mackinder who talks about the, the heartland of Europe and how you can control almost the world as a superpower if you own all of that, particularly with Eastern Europe uh, and Ukraine. I think that's without a doubt the case, but. The appetite for conflict or war and nation state interstate nation warfare is not there for the American public, so that means that in irregular warfare is absolutely critical uh, for us to actually influence shape, deter, and then when ready, defeat the enemy through violence on the battlefield and and that's where I think we kind of are as a nation right now, and I think irregular warfare is absolutely probably the pillar. of of what we need to pay attention to for the future. Well,
1: I really appreciate your rundown on that. I know it was a tough question in a way because I've been thinking about this hard myself. I think you told me uh, you have nine years total, something like that deployed, Iraq and Afghanistan together?
4: Yeah, combined, yes, sir.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, you have boots on the ground. You've seen it uh, up and down the ranks uh, and uh, obviously dealt with political and the interagency components of, of those two fights. uh, Let's turn it over to Ranger Doug. Ranger Doug, uh, you're up, my friend. Roger. Uh, Dan, that was brilliant. So
2: let me ask you to think about what you said about institutionalizing and learning from what we did, but then project forward into the world as we see it now with what's developing in Europe, what's developing in the Far East. Although we've been fighting mostly in a regular fight with counterinsurgency, stability, counterterror, information ops, Afghanistan, Iraq, and other places. How do we take that, and like Pershing did after chasing Pancho Villa, translated into success in World War One? how do we take that experience and move forward understanding this whole of government animal to be effective and win uh, against the situation that we face? And just if you could maybe think of three things. If you have more, that's great. But what would be three things that we could do to profit from what we've done well or perhaps not well to move ahead and win in the new environment.
4: Yeah, you know, I think that's a very good question too. <laughs> Narrowed it down to three things is obviously pretty challenging in and of itself. On a, on the we need do more. I, I would. Well, uh, yeah. So I would tell you that you know I think people have heard this, um, but when General Grange brought up. The fact that I've kind of had the spectrum of my deployments from you know, and then you even add my my time. He's a platoon leader and out of Vicenza, I was in in Bosnia right away. Um, you know, so it, data information is the new oil, so to speak, and it is absolutely overwhelming for us to understand. What is actually happening on the battlefield, and I say battlefield with the context that you know, from a political stand, diplomatic standpoint, informational standpoint, military standpoint, and economic standpoint, and you have to understand that as a as a military officer and NCO um, at every level because you're working inside of a village all the way up to a large region, if not a state. You go back to Iraq and General Petraeus uh, making independent. Uh, … initiative decisions with regards to the border between Iraq and Syria and commencing uh, with trade operations at the very beginning of Iraq. So the the character of conflict is rapidly changing, and, and all of our forces have to operate in this gray area, and, and that is something that is going to require what we have discussed earlier tonight on the whole government approach… And I think that is an institutionalization that needs to take place within our military that we are able to educate through you know, professional development courses and so forth with regards to our deploying forces that understand gray area conflict and how to be able to exploit the irregular warfare capabilities that exist um, inside of our special operations forces, which need to be more readily available And training and partnering back at home station to actually be able to execute those. And that requires changing our quote-unquote MTO, um, mission statements and so forth, so you can actually then allocate appropriate funds to be able to do that training. Uh, So I would say, number one, the the character of conflict is changing. You need to understand that um, that gray area, and it's a broad educational approach. Uh, Certain people will go deep on certain things. Um, it does require the whole government approach to shape and influence and deter, so that way there you know, needs to be outside of the military cross organizational type uh, uh, training and awareness. And then the last thing is, is we can't forget. And I know this is I'm preaching to the choir here with with the veterans and, and y'all on the on the phone today. Is in the end we have to extend the operational reach of a ground tactical commander to break the enemy's will to fight. Period. And restrictive ROEs um have got to be carefully managed so that way commanders have the flexibility to bring the violence that they need to bring to bear to break the enemy's will um i have great examples of those and a real quick one is when i went in as a battalion commander where i deployed 90 percent of my battalion but i was doing advise and assist irregular warfare type missions on a day-to-day basis but i watched and observed 10 to 15 enemy putting in ieds on Highway 1, and I fired artillery rounds for about 30 minutes and killed or wounded all, if not 90% of them, based off of intel that was gathered later. Within minutes, I got a phone call from senior officers asking me why I didn't fire a loom to chase them away, and my only answer was I wasn't going to send my troops down there to clear it when I could kill them with artillery. That's a mindset that can't be let go and cannot be forgotten because the inherent trust that soldiers and sailors and airmen and marines have in their commanders and their senior NCOs is that they're not going to be left behind on the battlefield. And that's something that I think that we still got to pay attention to. That's brilliant. Uh, just to, to wrap
2: up uh, a little bit on what you said, and I know you'll have more to say, I think we're faced by a situation, as I described earlier, like Pershing was. He's there chasing the gets the job by default because the guy in front of him dies he also gets promoted to general officer because the guy in front of him dies he's got to integrate the radio the tank the plane the truck the repeating rifle and then go to europe and watch them and see what they're doing wrong and he devises a concept he calls fire and maneuver the whole american army trains for it in a few months and when they go in they rip the lines open and world war one is over in weeks when in fact the germans thought they were settling in for a siege and would still win I think that's the approach that we have to think of, and the the agility of Pershing's mind was the thing that has to be there in a commander. And yet, though, like our previous guest mentioned, we in the military have this great education, training, operational experience. We're going to have to go out with the interagency, the whole of government. We're going to have to educate people and learn how to do things through, with, and by them because they will not have the capability or the capacity to do it themselves. What do you think of that as a
4: postscript? No, I think you're you're accurate. This and some of that is, I mean, first off, I mean, we all know there there are absolutely, and our first guest that you had on is an is an example. Despite the, you know, even though he served in the military prior, but there are people that are in the intelligence community, regardless of who's in the White House, there are people inside of the White House, there are people inside of State Department that are absolutely committed to the well-being of our country and and to be successful, and and they want to do the right things so i think that that has to be recognized by that but i think you're absolutely spot on with regards to what you said in in that comment because dod in the end is is allocated most of the budget we have the planes trains and the automobiles we have the ability to extend the commander's operational reach through technology and combat and we can use it for multi different purposes as well to enable a whole government approach you know with with regards to the technology that's out there today in um, bringing multiple intelligence sensing capabilities to the battlefield in the gray area prior to actual combat operations in order to prevent us deploying to the field. And I think that other conversation about cyber is spot on. You know, imagine trying to mobilize and deploy 2nd Ranger Battalion, 1st Special Forces Group, and the Striker Brigades at a Joint Base Lewis McCord when you have to put them on railways and you have to get them up down the highway and you have to get them to multiple different ports, all of which are vulnerable a cyber attack to prevent a mobilization and deployment on a timely manner. It's a very complex time from from a military installation in CONUS to where you actually have to be um, on the battlefield, whether in the Asia Pacific or the European landmass.
2: That's great, Dan. Thank you. General, over to you.
4: All right, Dan. Well, really
1: appreciate you being on the call tonight. Uh, great comments. And uh, the mobilization thing at the cyber at the end was, a, was really a good one because I don't think many people think about that that are out of uniform today. Whether they were in it before or never wore one uh, but it's a big deal yeah uh, and especially the, the civilian network throughout the country uh, how vulnerable that is but just i want to just quick 30 second summary um that when you look at central asia when you look at uh, for instance iran packing china russia you look at uh, what's going on with russia with ukraine right now again and look at China saber-rattling with Taiwan as a few examples. Uh, right now is an opportunity to enhance IW aggressively with the unity of effort of the nation because those things are not going away, and they're their gray, gray area. Central Asia is a very gray area, but a lot of things are going to happen out of this thing in the next six months, and we have to be ready for it. Dan, you don't get to respond to my next comment, but who on killing the enemy on Highway 1 uh, and using your <laughs> initiative and balls to do so. To hell with the illumination. Well done.
4: Thanks for being
1: on the show tonight.
4: I appreciate it, sir.
1: Look forward to talking to you, soon. Roger that. That was really great. I'm going to
2: pause for a moment to recognize our sponsors.
0: We'll be right back. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour with host, General David Grange.
5: Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985 serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com.
0: My father was the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Look at family tradition.
3: I'm truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat.
0: To be the truck driver, you not just
4: only see where you go; you see the world in the larger perspective. This is
6: a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable.
0: At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. We're back, and here's your co-host, Ranger Doug.
2: Welcome back to Veterans Radio R2.0, where tonight the topic is irregular warfare and moving into the future against multiple threats. Over to you, General.
1: Thank you, Ranger Doug. Uh, Our next guest is uh, Chuck Takaro, Service in the Military Special Forces. Later on, quite a lot of work in the information operations field. Uh, He was my instructor at the National War College and uh, the best guy I ever talked with about I.O. I was able to employ many of the things he taught us but me, in particular, Bosnia-Herzegovina in the uh, Balkans Sounds like to include Kosovo, I guess. And uh, if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't have been able to leverage all those IW tactics, techniques, and procedures. So, Chuck, welcome to the show, and please tell us a little bit about your background. Thanks, General. I appreciate it. And
6: just to return a compliment, you're the best student I ever had because you immediately took the lessons I gave you and employed them, so thank you. Um, you mentioned my background. 20th First Forces Group and the Guard. Uh, later, <clears throat> went on to do the same kinds of strategic conference for a guy named Ted Turner in the early days of CNN. And that's where the beginning of information warfare started when I realized that as a 33 year old reporter, I could push around governments because I had a global information system behind me and starting right about the military effects uh, of that kind of information. <clears throat> in 1991, I was recruited by the Office of Net Assessment, which is the think tank for the Secretary of Defense. And for 24 years, I was the outside uh, consultant to Mr. Andrew W. Marshall, who was the director of Net Assessment. And he allowed me to go off into very irregular places,
1: to do very
6: irregular things. Uh, and one of them was the, um, the creation of a military unit, the first one. Um, in this century, after Mark Johnson and the uh, Code Talkers, and in the last century by uh, Theodore Roosevelt and uh, the Rough Riders, what I was allowed to create was called the first um, joint software unit. And then in parentheses, the word virtual. And in it, I used the whole of nation approach, not the whole of government, because my soldiers were citizen soldiers and airmen, uh, and experimentally from the. Uh, California Air and Army National Guard. And um, I I believe Doug from uh, CIA was talking about um, you have to have PhDs with knowledge of, intimate knowledge of terrain. I had it. Um, We had people from Hollywood and from the Silicon Valley who at their fingertips could create um, information um, information warfare uh, techniques, tactics, procedures instantly. Not only that, but we could, as a group, view enemy propaganda and derive from it tactics, techniques, and procedures that the enemy didn't even know that they had betrayed. So I, I want to make a, a point about the differential between whole of government and whole of nation, and a return to the utilization of citizen-soldiers. Because what we haven't realized is that uh, we won every war we ever tried to fight with citizen-soldiers. Up until 1972, when Richard Nixon decided that as a domestic political convenience, he would create BOLAR, the Volunteer Army, because the draft was unpopular. The problem was it wasn't ineffective. It was simply unpopular. It became a professional army. The problem with that is it's up or out. And in information warfare, you need the expertise and uh, practice over time, as Doug had said earlier in the program. You don't see that in the military because you get deployed and rotated every 12 months, 24 months. Maybe you get a four-year rotation. When if you look at the enemy, in this case Chinese, they are in it in information warfare, whether it's, whether it's um, deception, propaganda, et cetera. They're in it for a career. And even if they presume to go forward arithmetically, over the course of 20 years, they're damn good. We need to understand this. We under, take a line from Shakespeare, who once said, the fault dear Brutus, is not in the stars, but in ourselves. We need to understand our weak points, and we have a lot of them, and our themes have a lot of those too, and construct an organization to deal with the world the way it is and not the way we would wish it would be.
1: Uh, uh, Chuck, I'm right with you. And um, let me go back to this, some of the experiences that we've had. And, yep. and, and take what you said. Now, we you, you, you really needed you on the other show. We talked about the volunteer force, and, and we'll bring it back when we do a part two of that. So don't let us forget, because we need you on that show to give that perspective again. Uh, I want to ask your question our enemy, whether it be our enemy that's employing unconventional warfare, IW, UW, IO, against us, uh, or even, you know, um, taken on their conventional forces, whatever the case may be. What I have seen, and actually you taught me this: the enemy is sometimes sometimes dumbfounded because he expects certain things from us on deception, right? Right on psychological warfare, yeah. on uncanny maneuver and things, and and right. that's because you know, either former former uh, Soviet sphere countries or those that they trained. And that's what they do. And they're dumbfounded at times that we don't do it more than we do. And I also, and you told me that, and it's very true. And I also feel that they they don't have respect for our commanders or for our leaders, whether it be political or military or agency, if we don't use I W N I O properly.
6: But yet, the the problem is here, the, the military today, does not recognize the difference between education and talent. Deception, for instance, is a completely nonlinear field. You can't take a field manual and go one, two, three, four, five, boom, and deceive the enemy. You need corkscrew brains to do it. Let's take example in World War II of uh, the man who never was, Operation Miss Me. There were two, three wild men, including Ian Fleming, who dreamed up the plot of taking a corpse floating it in into Spain, getting into the hands of the Gestapo, and faking the Germans out about where we're going to land in Sicily. You can't do that out of the book. That's a talent, and we have yet to recognize that throughout our military, the difference between talent and education. Once we recognize that, and I was able to do that in my composite guard unit that Mr. Marshall let me create, I could find talent and keep it. And this talent would go on, information warfare talent, in their civilian occupational specialty, at world class levels, the only difference between Hollywood and the military is Hollywood does I W for profit, and we do it for policy. But all the principles are the same. But Hollywood recognizes talent and pays for it. We don't. We think that one um, MOS is exchangeable exactly for another. Well, I might work with a mortarman or a machine gunner. But not for large scale strategic deception. So, how do we improve our IO? Well, I've already demonstrated this. The talent is already out there. It just happens to be in the garden reserve. When we went to a draft military, I'm sorry, went from a draft military to a volunteer military, we did it at the cusp of the information age and the height of, of the machine age. So, we still have a pyramidal bureaucracy reminiscent of the machine age, and we teach soldiers to put round hole round pegs and round holes. Now, in the guard where you've got people who don't have to be there and who want to serve and who have nonlinear professions, you can take that and, and operationalize it on a strategic level instantly. Instantly. We've done it in prototype form. The problem with this, Dave, is you gotta stand doctrine on its head. And you,
1: who've had experience trying to do this, understand how hard that is. No, it's very hard. But you did give a good example. That's one, one of many, many, many. We don't have time to go into others. But on the guard, uh, the citizens' approach good way. I like to turn it over to Ranger Doug. Give him an opportunity to uh, talk with you a bit. Well, Chuck, uh, you know, we talked
2: about whole of government. It seems to me that one of the things that we are lacking in our whole of government at this point is the thing we used to call the U.S. Information Agency. Do you think that yes. that should be reenacted or in some way something developed that takes on its functions? Probably not in a military yeah, well, area, but possibly interagency. Well, well more than that. But you need, here's the other problem with this. You need
6: proficiency over time. You can't change this out every six months, every administration. The enemy isn't doing that. Their propaganda stay in there for the duration. of social wars. Okay, maybe we rotate them in civilian jobs and we're using it as we, I did with, with Guardsmen and Reservists. But the, the point is, to answer your question directly, yes, we need a USIA. Right now we have five separate agencies doing information operations of some type. You've got um, the Broadcasting Board of Governors now called the Organization for Global Media. Okay, that's um, um, you know, Voice from America and other outlets. Then you've got the State Department, which does um, – which does its own um, uh, set of um, uh, information operations in the white, white propaganda. You have DOD that does white propaganda and um, gray propaganda, and with a presidential finding to do black. CIA, which does black. And then White House, that does its own thing for a multiplicity of reasons. The problem is none of this is standardized. They don't all go to the same schools. I mean, if we... If you look at the way the um, military aviation is organized, we have common standards. Everybody goes to hel- helicopter school at Fort Rucker. Everybody goes to artillery school at Fort Sill. So we all understand the basics and the same metrics. We all use meters. It's not the same in information warfare. Everybody uses a different set of measurements of how well they're doing. That's not good. Nor do we have a an information operations common curriculum across the government. And we need that. We need to organize for the war that's in front of us and not try to patch together with duct tape and bondo what we've got.
2: That's great. Wonderful answer. I was just wondering, in, in looking at all that we have right now, uh, we sometimes have people that pop up on the screen and we look at them and wonder what they're really all about. What's their true nature? Uh, what, is, what is your thought on what Edward Snowden had to do? Was he, was he an ethical person, do you think, or is he driven by something else? Well, I can't comment. I don't know the guy, but I can tell you
6: about how potent fame is and what it can do to you. Um, and so he might like that. You know, you get a taste of power and you become world famous and, you know, um, maybe you continue to do those things and take the risk with so Snowden's taking. But I, you know, I, I can't tell you because I don't know a guy. But I can tell you about Dave Green. I can tell you about having the balls. To operationalize ideas, I'm giving him over the telephone while he's over in Bosnia and turn it around and and have an effect. The problem is he, he looked at doctrine, looked what was going on in front of him, said doctrine doesn't fit this. Let me use Chuck's idea and presto, it works. Sometimes we are constrained too much by being literally indoctrinated in the way the army has to do things or the way the military has to do things. And we're back to the difference between education and talent. Talent in the information age is critical. If you look at business today, nobody really cares what's on your degree. What they care about is what was your last project and how much money you made for the, for the company. You know, the, the if you look at Microsoft or Google or, or any of the other large information companies, they aren't pyramidal in their structure. They're more like a pancake. You know, and, and that you can still see the batter stirring around in the flat pancake. You know, and we need something like that if we're going to operate effectively in the information age. Um, I don't want to go into a tirade, but, you know, there are other things. The Chinese, we saw this coming. If you look at the book, you'll see that they footnote Alvin Toffler, the guy who wrote Future Shock, the third wave, war and anti war. Deng Xiaoping, 30 years ago, saw the wisdom of that and, and fragged. Uh, 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 Colonels uh, um, Jang Pao and uh, Liang to write unrestricted yes. warfare. That's right. And That's right. it's a textbook, it's a cookbook. And we're the ones being cooked. And it's about slow motion war. Americans fight when they see clear and present danger. We're in a slow motion war. What if the danger is present but not clear, like cigarette smoking? Well, what, what if the danger is Clear, but not present. Um, I I took that backwards. It's clear, but not present, like cigarette smoking, or present, but not clear, like the slow poison that Lucretia Borgia used extremely effectively in the Renaissance. At the end of the time period, you're still the victor.
2: That's that's absolutely right. So uh, my reason for introducing Snowden, or you could take Bradley Manning, we do these operations, they depend on secrecy and security, And unfortunately, the the, the Achilles heel in all of them are people that will not stay with the ethos and decide they've got to seek fame or do whatever they believe is what they're doing. I I like the the guy
6: who did the poly poly on Bradley Manning. How the hell did he ever get a secret clearance?
2: Yeah, that's that's the point. We've got to develop some more sophisticated systems for vetting people. Chuck, thank you very much. General, over to you. You're welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you. uh... Razor Doug, and I'm going to summarize a couple points uh, as we say goodbye, Chuck, but we're going to have you back for part two on I.O. We're out of time for tonight, but just a, two things. One is reference information operations. You talked about talent. I, I uh, Same thought process I have. I always say one foot in the street and one foot in the library, and the talent is, is uh, obviously street sense. Uh, and that uh, and that's how I look at that and and you got to mix them. The last thing is we have a challenge because the leadership of the United States is short term. Leadership with our biggest adversaries, China and Russia, is long term. Those people are in charge for a long time. And so we have to figure this out with our democratic system because that's not going to change. So we got to make i o more potent in the United States for us to survive. And it's a big part of irregular warfare. Iw. Thank you, Chuck. We'll talk to you next time. Out. Well, thank you, veterans, and thank you, supporters of veterans. Listen to our our program tonight on irregular warfare and moving into the future. I think you can see from our guests, there's some powerful, powerful Americans that know this stuff and know how to apply it. And we just have to get everyone involved and pull a nation to do this properly. As you know, we already covered, uh, as we started Veterans Radio Hour again, 2.0, 9-11 plus 20 years. And that same show, we covered PTSD and TBI. Second show, we covered the POW, MIA. And, and I think, importantly, those doing something about it. And then we talked to Program 3, Stay at Home or Base Abroad. We covered the old old volunteer course. And is it working? I'm program number four, and tonight, of course, unconventional warfare, and we touched on overmatch and how it applies to the functions of operations, and I, and I think we're gonna do a part two to this because it's such an interesting program, and, and that's the only way to give positional advantage, to take on our, our threats to our enemies of today. Just one thing to keep in mind, As we do 2.0, we're really using Veterans Radio Hours 2021 programs as teasers. And just like Irregular Warfare, we'll have multiple follow-ups on these critical topics as we move into 2022. For the rest of this year, when we can with the holiday season, we'll focus on other overmatch issues throughout the spectrum of conflict that our country faces today for survival. And to maintain our quality of life and way of life being Americans and again we want to honor on this show Pearl Harbor December 7th yesterday as we go forward thank you for being with us again most appreciated Rangers lead the way as well as all veterans
5: Stay and Doug out. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the speaker's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of the Veterans Radio Hour. The material and information presented here is for general information purposes only. The Veterans Radio Hour name and all forms and abbreviations are the property of its owner, and its use does not imply endorsement or of opposition
0: to any specific organization, product, or service. Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Veterans Broadcast Network, bringing you shows like Veterans Radio Hour, Wounded but not broken, and roll call. Listen each week as General Grange and his guests address issues faced by veterans throughout their lives. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life, like a family tradition.
3: I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat.
0: To be the truck
4: driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a
6: really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable.
0: At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com Or call us at 847-754-4667 That number again is 847-754-4667